Okay, so I'm with Sam Hickey, who's one of the organizers of the Effective States and International Development uh, Project and the conference where I've been for three days. Um, and one of the things that's really difficult about conferences is to try and work out what it all means. And uh, especially a conference like this, which is the end of five years, I think, of research. So I'm gonna ask Sam the impossible question. So you can't say at the end of a five-year research program what you said at the beginning, which is context matters, everywhere is context-specific, mm -hmm. politics is really important. Okay, that was the starting point. Mm -hmm. What have you got after five years? Uh, impossible task to summarize all this stuff. Do it. Uh, no, fair challenge. Uh, it's a slightly harder challenge because we've been going since 2011, so it's even longer than five years that we've been doing this work. Um, but I think what sharpened our minds was having the conference, knowing that we were going to be working with such a high-profile bunch of practitioners as well as academics. So we did try and hone things down in terms of what we'd uh, come to. And we, we got it to sort of three C's. Uh, one of which is context, but I'll come back on your challenge on that. Um, the other two are capacity and coalitions. So, and the final takeaway is, is the title of the conference that I'll come back to about politics to power. But in terms of context, uh, there had been, I think, for quite a long time, a move away from what big uh, macro data set analysis could tell you cross-sectionally. Even Danny Roderick binned that quite a few years ago, saying we just, we just can't tell anything about what why countries do things and how it works out by looking across context. So we need to look at more specific context. That came down a little bit to a sense that everywhere is different, that you, you have to spend eight years in a country before you can say anything meaningful about it. So we wanted to pitch ourselves in the middle ground there and show that context matters, but it actually matters in quite similar ways depending on how the configuration of power. So we divided up our world into different types of political settlements within which power was configured differently. We didn't have a normative sense of which, whether a more dominant uh, concentrated power configuration was better or worse than a more dispersed competitive power configuration. We wanted to find out how each dealt with different types of development puzzle, whether it is avoiding the resource curse, generating growth that moves into structural transformation, delivering basic services, protecting women's rights, um, delivering cash transfers, whatever it is, we just wanted to find out how it works. were the meaningful differences and how things worked. Mm -hmm. Moving away from the what, all these countries have got great policies, not really being well implemented. So that was our sort of frontier, if you like. Uh, and we found that we could identify meaningfully different trajectories of development within those two different configurations of power. That we did identify examples of success where you had fairly dominant and cohesive governing elites in power, and that that became much more difficult under high, uh, conditions of high stress, um, be often because institutions weren't strong enough to mediate between competing demands. Example? So one example would be, in our first phase, would be um, oil governance, Ghana versus Uganda where the ability of countries to protect themselves vis-a-vis -vis the interest of transnational capital and oil companies that came in to these countries once they both found oil in about the same time in about the same amounts was, come on, we want to get this oil out onto market, commodity prices high, get rich quick. A lot of presidents would buy into that. Where you've got a long-term president uh, in Uganda, he said, no, I'm going to build up technocratic capacity first. We'll do our exploration and then we'll make deals on our own term versus Ghana's rush to the market. Um, on deals that were fairly questionable. Now, so in that sense, dominant worked better. The autocrat got a better deal than the democrat. 
Yes, and that's what our first phase of work found. What our second phase, because we wanted to follow up on that and test that downstream. So it's okay, a certain number of smart people can drive hard bargains in a, in a room. That's very different to actually getting production going, revenue allocation, making sure people benefit from this. And there, Ghana has way outperformed Uganda once you get further down the value chain. The deals weren't as good, what government gets isn't as good, but then they're now producing oil, um, money is coming back into the budget and going out for development projects. And what's happening in Uganda? Nothing. Uh, the oil is in the ground. Uh, the president, Angelo Zama, who we're working with closely on this, has got a theory of this uh, about why uh, the president is, is reluctant to move towards production. Our current analysis suggests that he's, he's maintaining a long-term vision. He's trying to drive tough tax deals as well as deals around the other parts of the fiscal regime. And that's just recently led to the collapse of the pipeline deal, for example, in the last couple of weeks. Um, who was that with? Uh, that was with, it was going to be with Total, who are operating in, uh, in Tanzania uh, as, as well. So the lots of the deals are there for the pipeline to go ahead. It's been held back partly because the president in Uganda wants to have a refinery as well, because he's a resource nationalist, he's sick of Uganda just sending its commodities to market without value added. So he wanted to have a refinery to, to have this, um, get Uganda up the value chain. We think, as far as we can tell, about ideas rather than about dominance. You know, he'd, he'd have made more money for himself and his cronies mm. if he'd gone to market and cut good deals. He didn't, he held back. So there's something going on about ideas here that it's not just about how long you stay in power, how good your technocrats are, and they're excellent in Uganda. It's also about what vision you have um, for the country moving forward. While we're on that, because that's one of the things that struck me in this conference, is a number of times people have said it's not just about politics and parties and, 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 and power, it's about ideas and relationships and mm. these softer things which we maybe political scientists tended to dismiss a bit more in the past. Mm. Is that something that's come up a lot? Yes, I mean, it, it's just very difficult to research. So we can say that political science has had blind stop spots about this in terms of theoretically, it's underplayed ideas. They become the residual when you can't explain something, it must have been ideas, because they're incredibly difficult. Yeah, and if not ideas, then culture. <laughs> yeah, exactly, something like that. <laughs> so he's brought in at the end rather than, um, but we, we put that on the table at the start. Political settlements analysis tends to imagine that every ruling elite is just interested in the politics of survival, material interest and maintaining themselves in power. And actually we do find that uh, ideas matter at at least three levels. They, they matter at the paradigmatic level at the, at the top, ideologies, what relationship you want to have between state and capital, ideas around redistribution, ideas of nationhood and who belongs and who doesn't and who deserves to get what. So big ideas, but also ideas really matter in terms of policy ideas and solutions, practical solutions. Um, until elites perceive the, um, that external policy ideas, we, we've looked at uh, work against uh, uh, domestic violence, we've looked at work on cash transfers, ideas coming often from outside, elites only brought into them when it either fitted their ideological frame or it solved a pressing political problem for them, some sort of existential crisis in Ethiopia, Rwanda, around cash transfers, this was a sense that the political settlement was being threatened um, by a food security crisis in Ethiopia, um, by, by uh, reduced poverty reduction rates in Rwanda, and Kagame's legitimacy is heavily based on being seen to deliver evenly across the country. And it was seen that poverty was rising in certain Hutu-dominant areas. Quickly they had to find a solution, and at that stage internationals were promoting cash transfers, that became the solution. So we've, we've tried to show how ideas interplay with interest. It's not an either or, uh, they're often closely entwined with each other. 
it's quite rare that pure ideas will trump a material interest. What you find more often is that elites have got bounded rationality. They can only hold so many ideas and information in their head. Um, events push them, particularly crises around their stay in power, push them towards grabbing new solutions for what they perceive to be problems. And that's when ideas policy entrepreneurs to used to be, yeah, needs to be relevant and, and in the right place at the right time. I really time. like that. There was a panel where someone said that they'd sold fiscal discipline to Museveni by saying, it's really just like military discipline. Yeah. And he went, oh, yes, I like the sound of that. Absolutely. And he, he, we wore his fatigue and walked around villages telling people that the reason why we're not going to throw money at education or whatever it was was because we need to be disciplined. So he went all the way down to the local level. It didn't last long. Once he became under pressure from 2001 onwards, he broke every fiscal rule going. So, so that's your it's example of it's, bound, it's bounded. It's not a permanent thing, but it's, it shapes. The politics of survival does often trump the more ideological. OK, trump. now I'm slightly knocking you off your, your, your C's, but I just mm. wanted to ask, I've got a different C, which is quite absent from a lot of this, which is mm. civil society. I work mm. for Oxfam. Um, Civil society seems to appear as something which is a prod to elites to do different things. Mm -hmm. or to, is, that, is, is it basically a bit part in a lot of the, this work? It's been there very prominently in the work that we did on anti-domestic violence legislation, the role of women's activists in building coalitions with sometimes fairly dominant autocratic leaders, sometimes with really committed feminist bureaucrats in bureaucracies in countries like Bangladesh. So the women's movements came through very strongly there. It also came through in Diana Mitland's work on... Um, the importance of uh, having vibrant civil societies co-producing public services in urban India. Um, that you could have highly effective bureaucracies, but they wouldn't be delivering in the interest of the poor unless they had civil society there pushing uh, for that to That's be possible. I mean, that, well, which is actually obvious. We should think about civil society in terms of what. Mm. You know, it's obviously going to be more effective or more relevant in some topics rather than others. Mm. Looking at things through an Oxfam case, I just think civil society should be everywhere, mm. but actually that's silly. Well, um, we, we found it heavily absent in, 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 in some areas. For example, social protection and the rapid spread of social protection where you now have twice as many countries between 2010 and 2016 in sub-Saharan Africa that have got at least one non-contributory uh, social cash transfer. And we looked around all the potential drivers of this and civil society beyond a couple of big international NGOs that uh, worked with DFID and others to promote cash transfers. Local civil society was largely so that was all top-down stuff, was it? It was largely um, coalitions built, often in a very politically astute way by donors such as DFID, often in partnership with UNICEF, nearly always in some form of contrast to what the World Bank wanted to do at the time. Building coalitions with bureaucrats in the right places, ministers of gender, community development, who were very committed, had vulnerable groups as part of their mandate. But then extending that, often having done some political economy analysis, to an attempt to bring in the more powerful blockers, the obstructors, the people in charge of budgets, and the people mm. with a gateway to the presidents and so on. Um, so yeah, the civil society, I think will become more important at the next stage of some of these policy developments, um, say around cash transfers. We're now seeing constituencies of old people around social pensions developing. Great Panthers. And finally. <laughs> this is excellent. And, and some unusual forms of civil society. So we looked at education um, and it wasn't professionally funded civil society from, if you like, typical liberal democratic theory. It was traditional authorities um, supporting local teachers associations with other politically salient stakeholders that were or holding local teachers to account, headmasters to account and making sure teachers turned up and taught. Oh, I'm definitely so, interested in that from the whole point of view of public authority, which mm. is one of the things I do at NSA. Mm. That'd be good.
Good to talk about that. It, it does come through as more varied. I think it's a useful term, public authority. In the bigger scheme of things, we did keep coming back to the state, perhaps not surprisingly, for the Effective States and Inclusive Development Research Centre. Um, but that sort of brings us to, the, I guess, the second C of capacity that we found that it's still the only institution, institutional form of public authority that can manage globalisation, that can protect women's rights, that can deliver services at scale, can build political order. Um, and we find that it wasn't an easy message to come out with, um, given that there's a, been a lot of backsliding around democracy, um, but we did find that the international development agenda had become not obsessed, but tilted much more strongly towards ways of holding states to account and making them transparent without necessarily making sure they were capable of doing things which could then be held accountable for. And so we, we've, we've sought in our work to rebalance that and to show that capacity really matters and to show that historically this is a real problem for not just developing countries, but historically um, industrialised countries. And your third C? Coalitions. So I touched on it there as well. Um, that uh, in conditions where rules don't play out in the ways you would expect them to, uh, you need fixes, you need way of um, getting in between the underlying configurations of power, the balance of power between powerful and less powerful groups, economic, social and political, how institutions function and what policy reforms are possible. And at every stage we found that the role of coalitions is, is critical. These can be quite narrow coalitions between political leaders and bureaucrats who agree um, to protect a certain part of the economy around pockets of effectiveness and allow certain units of government to flourish in otherwise dysfunctional contexts. They can be much broader um, coalitions that, that involve firms within those as well, which can underpin either, as Michael Walton's work turns out, good or bad forms of cronyism that are either just for profit for groups and, and rents or actually more productive types Somewhere of deals. Somewhere like South Korea. This is it. There's no one's going to say that was rules-based industrial mm -hmm. development. It was a particular set of deals held in place by a particularly powerful um, So these are leader. fairly informal, not, not specified, not written down kinds of coalitions. Mm. Yeah, based on credible deals, though, there's a credibility from perhaps leaders being in power for a longer period of time. And there's an order to them where they get the, 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 the firm, for example, realises that it's not going to be overturned, that it's some credibility kind of... just about trust or about plausibility or what, what's the origin of a credible deal? Yeah, I, I guess some sort of mutual reciprocity is required there, that, that there must be an awareness that you, of needing each other, um, that this political leader, either for their accumulation project or their ideological project, needs this particular form of capital to be on board, so they can both can see the, the win-win involved in that. Um, but what happens with these types of deals, particularly with early growth takeoffs, can be based on fairly politically cronyistic types of deals that are at least ordered, kept in place by leaders with a vision and bureaucrats with regulative capacity, um, not necessarily firms with a national interest, but you know, at least firms that are capable. Um, but these then block the next round of capitalists who need to come up and make sure growth is sustained and becomes more dynamic. So they hold on to their deals. They're often in sectors like oil, natural resources, like telecommunications, like banking. So these become big power brokers and rentiers, which don't want to shift away from their comparative advantage vis-a-vis -vis deals and political rulers and reduce the dynamism that's required to move forward. So how do you, get, how do you disrupt it? Um, yeah, you need to have strong enough governments to open things up, not necessarily just open straight away. We've got examples in our research where governments move to open up, say, mining in Rwanda. 
and they just didn't have the capacity. All of a sudden, they used to know the three or four firms they worked with, then they opened, deregulated, everyone could come in, they couldn't regulate it at all, profitability goes down, uh, the, the deal-making environment suffered. So we see you know, the move towards more open, inclusive deal-making has to go stepwise with increased regulative capacity of the state to, to manage that process. Um, so this, the disciplining of capital, um, as well as state investment in learning rents and so on, is, is really important. And this kind of brings us a little bit to the pockets of effectiveness thing, which I was very struck by. Is this, I mean, it's not a new idea. Mm. What have you added to this whole idea that even in apparently dysfunctional states, there will be ministries, there will be departments, there will be little revenue authorities which actually are doing okay, mm -hmm. um, trying to understand A, why they're there, and B, whether they can be supported, mm. right? Sure. So I think what we've done goes back to what we said about context. We've shown that you can have high levels of public sector performance in the two different types of political settlement that we started with, the more dominant and the more competitive, but they're through different routes. Um, in the more dominant routes, you can have a sort of Rwandan or Ethiopian approach to state building where there's investment. It's not it, there's genuine investment in building institutions across the board that hopefully function across the national territory. In other dominant settings, you get a much more personalised set of deals made between political rulers and bureaucrats, such as in Uganda, and that can work really well for a certain time, but then the, the, the whimsical nature of, of, uh, and capricious nature of um, dominant leaders is that they can just change. If, if they perceive themselves to be vulnerable to pressure, if their ideas change, if they become captured, then they will then capture those institutions that they built up. So are you finding the same thing that Roderick argues on economies, that uh, autocracies produce a more volatile, bigger booms and bigger busts, mm -hmm. democracy has feedback loops and, and therefore mm -hmm. tends to smooth out those big I think with a much downs. smaller data set, yes. I think we, we don't, certainly don't find anything to contradict that. I think we've added in detailed comparative cases which show the causal mechanisms. So, so Roderick showed us the big macro data on that. We've begun to identify how that happens. That's amazing. So yes, I think, I think that, that there is a definite similarity there. Okay. Um, and it's more difficult in competitive settings just because you know, England found it very difficult to move towards a meritocratic civil service when it, if it had to have high levels of political competition before it had built up a fairly capable bureaucracy. Um, Prussia, Japan, the same. Um, the United States got into a big mess and the politics of patronage is arguably worse in the US at the time at the moment because they actually did both at the same time in the late 19th century. So sort of Democrats and Republicans fighting each other at the same time as trying to fill jobs. So who worked in the post office? 50,000 workers lost their job overnight mm -hmm. if the election went one way or the other. Um, so that makes it very difficult if you've got and we've, we've asked countries in sub-Saharan Africa to be, become high-capacity states and highly democratic at the same time, and it's just really difficult. Okay, but so the, okay, so now we're into the sequencing thing. Mm. So it's always slightly alarming when people say you can have rights and democracy, but just not yet. Mm. Is that where you've ended up? I, it's really tough. Cause that, normatively, that would stick in the throat of pretty much everyone who works within ACID. Um, the way in which we think about it, or at least I think about it, have to, I can't uh, speak for all my colleagues, is that I think the response to that question at the current time has been coloured by democratic backsliding and the rise of popular authoritarianism, and that's understandable. So what you have amongst certain liberal democratic states in the OECD sphere is a doubling down on liberalism and saying, no, we have to talk about inclusion louder than ever now, and it has to be democracy first and foremost. You know, the Hong Kong issue really raises the, what, what's at stake here between two different models, if you like. Um, another group is much more conservative within international development, goes back to Samuel Huntington and says, no, it's all about order. 
you know, we, can, we need to subjugate messy, contentious world of politics to the world of order and authoritarians help give us that. So if that's what certain countries want to do, we're going to back that and, and not worry too much about democratic rights. And we don't think either is a valid response, either ethically or in terms of the, the evidence base for those. So we're trying, and it's not easy, and I'm not sure it's as coherent as it could be, to map a kind of third way, which says that state capacity really matters. It can be part of a progressive agenda. It, we don't have to just say it's all about Korea and China, and that's the way you have to do things. If you look back at the political history of Western states, Scandinavia, uh, Richard Sandbrook's work shows that you needed highly capable states to be able to mediate between competing demands down the road. That happened, that hand insertion in the global economy, happened before you got inclusive programmatic politics that built the welfare state. So I think a lot of evidence points towards sequencing. Um, very difficult to go and say that to people in, 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 in countries where they're being repressed. Um, so what do you do? Um, there's, we don't find compelling evidence that repression is a requirement for development to work. So there's no That's we, a relief. We don't find any justification <laughs> for authoritarian forms of rule. We find just as much evidence to support you need capacity and competitive as dominant context. So our, our argument isn't between democracy and authoritarianism. It's how you manage these really difficult processes of competition and capacity building over time. But uh, I think some of our work points towards the ways in which you can build capacity and accountability um, at the same time. Um, we see that at the local level, coming back to something we didn't cover the, the importance of not just the national but the local level of governance. We do find local political settlements to be critical, that you do find parts of Ghana, Uganda delivering healthcare, maternal mortality, high quality education and it's because they've managed to resolve through a mixture of accountability and capacity building these local level coalitions coming to place to put these fixes in place which do both capacity and uh, inclusion. Thank so so some, somewhat easier at the local level. Last question. You've been absolutely eating, drinking, living, breathing this thing since 2011. What's your biggest surprise, exciting inspiration? What's the thing that, you've, that you're most pleased about that it's produced? And I hope it's a simple one. <laughs> I, I think it's, it, it's not a one-off um, moment, an idea or a finding. To me, it's the recognition that we now have a brilliant generation of scholars who are going to keep talking about politics. That we, When we came into this, we, we, politics had come to the mainstream and people understood that politics mattered for shaping development, but weren't really clear how. And now we've, we've, got, we've done, spent a lot of time capacity building uh, a remarkable set of academics from the global south, Ghana, Uganda, Bangladesh, India. And what's, what's most pleasing to me is that um, we now have the next generation of people who are going to keep on talking about politics and how it shapes developments in the global south as well as in the, the academy and the development stage in the global north. So my, my, that's my best, my favourite takeaway from all of this. That's, that's, been that's a great way to end. Okay. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thanks, Duncan.